This is a crowd podcast. It starts in the dark. It starts in the audience. A mother and her son settle into their seats at a quiet provincial theatre. It's putting on a production by a local drama society. Arthur Miller's All My Sons. The lights dim. A hush falls. The stage is small. The actors ordinary. But as the plot plays out, as the characters' secrets and lies break through, the boy is transfixed. When applause breaks the spell and the cast take their bow, something's shifted. A facade has fallen away. The messy, petty reality of the adult world is laid bare. He looks at his mother next to him and sees her life and his with new eyes. This is how Philip Seymour Hoffman looks back on that night. I literally thought, I can't believe this exists. I was changed, permanently changed by that experience. It was like a miracle to me. Philip's not your usual Hollywood star, not your usual leading man. Some actors do charisma and charm. They radiate confidence, they lead, and the audience follows. Some actors can do that, can win over the world, but Philip can't. For starters, he's not got the look. Middle age creeps up on him fast. He's grizzled and bloated. His belly wobbles over his waist. His hair hangs lank. His eyes are blank, dull, watery. But he also just doesn't want to, to lead. He wants something more interesting because between the matinee idol and the pantomime villain is the everyman. It's where we watch from, in the darkness of the cinema, with our little weaknesses, temptations, our cruelties and compromises. When Philip's on screen, you don't see a star shining back. You see a reflection with every failing magnified. The lust, the loathing, the arrogance, the deceptions. His characters don't plan world domination. Nothing that evil. But the everyday sins, the ones we all have, they're all there. Barely repressed, hardly hidden. There's one scene in Capote. Philip Capote is sitting in the sun. The sea glitters behind him. The wind ruffles his hair. There's a platter of fresh fruit on the table. Oranges, grapes, pears. A bright white tablecloth. Capote's reading a letter from an old friend. A friend in need, far away, asking for him before he dies. And Capote retreats. He makes excuses, work's been busy. He's written him plenty of letters. It's just not the right time to visit. It's not nice, but it's normal. We've all done it. It's just the business of being human. Philip's performances linger with those watching 
And when the director shouts cut, when the film's in the can, Philip can't leave the darkness behind either. How can he? He knows a Manhattan townhouse and millions in the bank is no protection. The love of a good woman and the smiles of three children are only temporary relief. Because the old temptations are always there. Weaknesses weigh heavy. Decisions loom large. It's true for everyone. And it's true for Philip. There's a constant in Philip's life, one he never has to choose, he never wants to change. It's New York, the state, the city, and best of all, the spirit. He grows up in Fairport, a leafy, wealthy suburb. Life's comfortable, financially at least. In other ways, less so. Philip can never rest easy. He's one of four kids looked after by one parent. His dad moves out when Philip's nine, so his mom, Marilyn, sets the tone. She hustles and bustles, making up for lost income. After she splits from Philip's dad, she puts herself through law school and becomes a paralegal. She takes on the braces and big shots of 1980s New York courtrooms. She defies expectations. She changes what's possible. Marilyn's the daughter of Irish immigrants. Marilyn O'Connor, she's called. And that heritage seeps through the generations. That belief that you can change your life, you can reinvent yourself. A restlessness born of necessity to get on, to change up, to reach out for something more. Initially for Philip, that striving comes in a vest and headguard. He's no child actor. At high school, he's a jock. He's big, strong, a beer of a boy. The beginnings of a man. He plays football, but most of all, he's a wrestler. That's what he's best at. His weight, his heft, his presence. It's felt on the mat, not the stage. Philip grapples and grunts, shoves and heaves, pounces on hesitation and weakness. Then one afternoon, in a practice session, he twists wrong. His body contorts. His head refuses to follow. Muscles tear. Vertebras shift. He hurts his neck. It's not a big injury, a matter of millimetres, but it's where something shifts. Where Philip's life follows a different track. Where his mother's resourcefulness shows up in her son. Neck in a brace, banned from sport, he starts to act. And he's good. His school are putting on a couple of Arthur Miller plays by chance. The same small life dramas and dilemmas he saw in the audience that time. On the stage, Philip shines. And in that success, a seed is sown. It proves something to him. Something he's seen in his mother, but now knows for himself. That lives can be wrenched in new directions that old weaknesses can be overcome. It sows a sense of urgency, an impatience, an impulsiveness. But the one thing that doesn't change? New York. It never does. He graduates school and heads downstate to the city. 
He goes to study drama. But the Big Apple in the mid-80s, it comes with big temptations. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. The sketches are done in rough charcoal. They show mounds of twisted metal and concrete, dust rising, people praying. They hang on the white walls of a small, quiet gallery. Another angle on an unforgettable scene. Two planes, two towers, and infinite sadness. Those pictures mark an absence, the loss of thousands of lives, a hole in the Manhattan skyline, a sudden emptiness after the optimism of a new millennium. But for Philip, tonight, they're the start of something as well. It's just a couple of months after the attack. He's with Mimi, a costume designer. They've worked together for years. They're part of the same theatre company. He directs actors, she dresses them. They talked late into the night about small details and big ideas, but this is different. This is personal. They eat at a little Italian restaurant. They stroll through the chill evening to a soundtrack of traffic. And now they're inside, in the quiet, looking at art, looking at each other. And in a broken city, Something is growing between them. He's an ascending star, an actor with a growing reputation. He's caught people's attention. Philip is a man who draws out hidden dimensions. A man who brings some of life's ugly gristle to everything he works on. He makes you think. Is making the big studios think. He isn't the star in Boogie Nights, The Big Lebowski, the talented Mr. Ripley. As the credits roll, Philip's not at the top of the cast list, but he punches above his weight. His career's at a delicate point. He could be about to soar. For the first time, he's been approached for roles that would put his name on the poster, his face in the middle. He could decide that a new relationship is not what he needs right now. He could knuckle down, close himself off, grind through on his own for another couple of years, break through to the A-list glory beyond. But of course, he can't. He's Philip. She's Mimi. This is love. 
and another of life's screeching turns. He's all in. He tells her everything. He tells her about arriving in New York as a drama student, a young man who tries to swallow the city whole. He tells her about the bright lights and the late nights, about the jazz and the joints, performing till it's dark and drinking till it's light. He tells Mimi how it speeds and spirals into something else. Because while Philip is partying in New York, something's happening thousands of miles away. In Afghanistan's high mountains and deep valleys. It's the 80s and Afghanistan's at war with the Soviets. Guerrilla fighters and local warlords hide in the caves. They use the local crop to fund their resistance. Poppies grow high. Their thick white gum grows heavy. It dries to a black tar and then it's shipped out to the world. Millions of dollars back to Afghanistan. Hundreds of thousands of addicts in America. It's the world's biggest market, whatever trade you're in. So traffickers carry kilos of heroin on the long journey through Iran into Turkey. Then the Balkans and across the Atlantic. It floods onto corners in Harlem and the Lower East Side and eventually some of it winds up in the arm of a young drama student from Fairport. Philip's hooked. Drink and drugs. He's caught on both prongs. He studies hard, pushing himself into every corner of a character. But he parties harder. Skateboarding through Greenwich Village as dawn breaks, high on whatever hit he can afford. This is what he says when he looks back on that time nearly 25 years later. It's not really complicated. I had no interest in moderation. And I still don't. Just because all that time's passed doesn't mean it was just a phase. That's who I am. He tells Mimi about that past, about the present, the therapy, group meetings, rehabilitation, and the abstinence. That's his lifelong project. And together, they paint a picture of the future. Not of premieres and festivals, super yachts and celebrity. Instead, the games that all couples play. <laughs> where they'll be in 10 years, in 10 months. By the end of the year, they're looking at apartments. By spring, Mimi stops taking the pill. A couple of months later, she's pregnant. She calls to tell her mom the news. This is how the conversation goes. Hi mom, I'm pregnant and, oh yeah, I have this new boyfriend. Things are changing, but Philip's still rising upwards to the heavens. In his career, at least. A solvent-sniffing widower. He plays a sex line operator, recording and blackmailing his customers. A repressed English teacher with the hots for one of the students. A bank employee who steals millions to feed his gambling addiction. A corrupt preacher. A burnt-out actor. And finally, a writer. 
Truman Capote. Capote was brilliant but brittle. His abilities undercut by insecurity and petty arrogance. Phillips studies him for four and a half months before shooting starts. He rewinds footage of Capote again and again. He listens, earphones clamped around his head to recordings of interviews. Philip takes it in and then takes it on. Capote's stance, his tone, mannerisms, quirks. Now he's sprinting up and down a basketball court, dropping to do sit-ups and press-ups at every turn. He sheds weight to get into his character's skin. He's recreating the man piece by piece from the ground up and he doesn't let up. Between takes, he stays in character, nervous that if one part slips, the whole facade will crumble. And it's perfect. Philip captures Capote's essence, both the great writer and the ordinary man. And he captures every prize going. Best actor at the Oscars, BAFTAs, the Golden Globes. Philip collects them all. Before starting his stroll to the stage, he turns to kiss Mimi. Their three-year-old son's at home, their daughter's kicking about inside Mimi's stomach. Life's good. But life changes. Sometimes by chance, sometimes by circumstance, sometimes by impulse. And Phillips changes more than most. So what sparks that downward spiral? Why does Philip fall so fast from his pedestal? Why, with the world at his feet, does he drown in his greatest weakness? Well, how far back do you want to go? Which is the ripple that turns into the tidal wave? How do you untangle the knot? Philip's in his mid-forties. His eldest son's nine, his youngest is four. The first flush of fatherhood is over. The last remnants of youth, gone. Around him, friends, marriages are falling apart. It's a time in life where clouds can gather, doubts can resurface, and a yearning for something different can make men do strange things. There are immediate issues. Philip's therapist dies. His addiction meetings are less regular now, and there are things decades old. Philip's almost the age his dad was when he left. Maybe he just gets complacent. Maybe he thinks he's over all that. Maybe that old urge deep in his DNA from his mum comes on strong. Go on, change everything one more time. It's hard to say. The why isn't clear. But the how? It's all too public. Because recovering addict is the role he's been playing longer than any other. You have to stay in character, you can't slip. Not when you have an appetite like Philip's. Not when moderation is impossible. You have to stay in character. And Philip slips. He tells Mimi he wants to try a drink or two, just a couple, with dinner, with friends. To relax, to be normal. And he does. He is, for a while. Beers in the evening, after work, shooting the breeze, draining the dregs, and then to bed. But the limits get loosened. 
Phillips between one project and another, the days stretch out in front of him, empty and inviting. Days to waste away turn into days spent wasted. Alcohol's gentle warmth doesn't quite cut it. And neither does the fog of prescription pills. Heroin's embrace welcomes him back. Philip's stone-cold sobriety was only a few months ago. But slowly, heroin peels him out of family life. So, he rehabs and detoxes. But his demons don't go away. They hide just beneath the surface, pulling him back down into the darkest depths. He knows the risks, that heroin's changed, that he's changed. The drug comes cut with cheap, powerful painkillers now. His body is flabbier, his heart weaker than when he used before. But that doesn't matter. Logic can't stand in the way of his next kick. He's still filming. He's playing the director of a deadly dystopian game show. The Hunger Games. He rains down death and plays with contestants' lives, just like his own. Word is getting out. One time, he calls a reporter from Atlanta, where the final Hunger Games is being shot. But he's slurring. Sentences fizzle into nothing. Names, places and people are lost in the haze. But the end, the final part of this story, that's back in New York. Philip still loves the city. He strolls around Greenwich Village as he always has, smoking, sitting, savouring. It's not like the old days. Now, camera phones capture the come down. Blogs comment on his blank look. There's CCTV, there's receipts. Philip's final day mapped out in real time. Every moment captured and then crumbled apart for clues. It's a Saturday morning. Philip stops at a cafe for his usual, a four-shot espresso. He meets Mimi and the children at a playground. He eats dinner at a local burger and beer joint, chatting about a future project with some others. Then he strolls up to a cash point. He takes out $200. He waits a few minutes, looks around, then he does it again. And again, and again. In total, he takes out $1,200 in cash. He texts a friend. Does he want to head over and watch the second half of the ball game? Miami Heat are in town. LeBron James. But there's no reply. Nothing to fill the gap. Just time to fill. Time to kill. So Philip sends another text. Different number. And the delivery is on its way. They find Philip on Sunday morning. He was supposed to pick up the kids but never showed up. His friend and assistant go to find him. He's in t-shirt and shorts, dressed for warm weather but cold on the bathroom floor, a needle sticking out his arm. There are empty envelopes strewn on the floor, each stamped with the Ace of Spades logo, a dealer's calling card, and on his phone, there's a text. It reads, just got out of dinner. Where are you? 
a message that came too late. Philip's loved ones coming second to his habit, one final time. Maybe he read it, maybe not. Either way, a reply never comes. And two worlds tremble on their axes. But police officials suspect Philip Seymour Hoffman may have died. First Hollywood, Philip's decline was tracked on social media and his demise is mourned there. In the weeks before his death, the images and videos bounce around the world. Philip slurring through a film festival interview, Philip knocking back drinks at an Atlanta bar, Philip slumped in his seat on a flight back to New York, and then after the tributes. Actors across the world tweet out the same sentiments. Hollywood's old school, Robert De Niro, George Clooney, and young pretenders like Jennifer Lawrence, Anna Kendrick, and Aaron Paul. This is what Steve Coogan writes. There are actors and there are movie stars. And sometimes they're both. But he was an actor first and a movie star second. United in grief, they look at the void left behind. Found dead inside his New York City at his home after what they believe was a heroin overdose. And more than 70 bags of heroin in his apartment. Some Second, New York. The mayor and governor release statements. Theaters dim their lights along Broadway. Candles are lit outside Manhattan restaurants. In front of the apartment block, flowers freeze in the snow. The most touching one, though, that comes from upstate, outside the city, closer to the source. In his Oscars acceptance speech back in 2006, Philip talked about one person more than everyone else, his mom. The woman who set him on his path and gave him the courage to change it. My mom is here tonight. She took me to my first play. Her passions became my passions. And you know, be proud, mom, because I'm proud of you. Eight years later, in grief, rather than celebration, she gives her reply. It comes at a small cinema in Rochester, which is screening a film in honor of her son, a venue very like the one they watched a play together all those years ago. We miss and cry for the little boy and the man, the brother, the uncle, the husband, the father, the friend, and we will also miss his talent his knowledge of his craft. He was a gift to me for 46 years. I wanted more. And so too did her son. More from himself. More from his career. More from life. It was his greatness. It was his flaw. It was what defined Philip Seymour Hoffman. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we read from the archives of the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Vogue, Time Out, The Guardian and People magazine. We watched scenes from across Philip's career, particularly his superb performance in Capote. 
The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, go back and listen to the one about John Belushi. And if you'd like a different podcast to listen to, search for Death of a Rockstar and listen to the ones on Marvin Gaye and Ava Cassidy. Thank you for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.